0: Well, hello, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to meet me in First Corinthians. We're going to be in chapters one and two as we be, as we continue a series that we've begun. Last week as our pastor just opened up our march through the book of 1 Corinthians that we are calling Cutting Through the Noise, Cutting Through the Noise. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to last week's message, I want to highly encourage you to do so. Um, I, uh, I emailed Pastor JD earlier this week and just told him I thought that was a phenomenal word in season for where we are as a church, not just a little seed church, the local assembly, but for where the Church of Jesus Christ. In America specifically is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look at what the gospel does with culture and specifically this whole idea of foolishness to the Greeks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly. It's the idea of foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your own son to die on the cross for our sins. To the world, this indeed is foolishness. Give me grace, Father God, as we unpack this, as we talk about, Lord God, the the proverbial foolishness of the cross. I pray that the gospel would be made clear and that you, Lord God, would unveil yourself as never before to those who are gathered. It is in Christ's name I ask all of these things. Amen and amen. Several years ago, there was a slang term that entered into our cultural lexicon. Uh, It's the slang term catfished. Now, I ain't talking about what goes great with red beans and rice. And by the way, if you've never had catfish and red beans and rice, do not die until you have. If you feel the death angel coming, tell them to hold off until you can get some catfish with red beans. And rice. I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm talking about a slang term that was used to describe a, a person who had been deceived. When we talk about a person who's been catfished, uh, we're talking about a person who's been deceived. Typically, what happens is this takes place online across some social media platform. A individual might think they're talking to a guy when it's really a girl, or a girl when when it's really a guy. They may think they're talking to some Nigerian prince when in reality it's some dude named Stan living in his mama's house in Michigan scheming to rob you it's the idea of catfish and when the reality strikes you that this person is not at all the way that they presented themselves and you realize you've been catfished the level of um, of hopelessness the level of despair the level of betrayal that you feel is through the roof because this person had presented them one way But in reality, they were another. I really believe that if Paul were writing the church at Corinth today, he would say in so many terms that that you all are catfishing society. It was Mark Dever who said that at its core, the church exists to, to be a reflection of God to the world. So that when people come into the doors of a local assembly, they, they should get a collective picture of the image of God. Of course, we're not saying that that churches are perfect. You put any collection of human beings together in any institution, there's bound to be disappointment. There's bound to be hypocrisy. I feel like the the church has gotten too far of a blame on that, and yet it's true. Here is the church of Corinth, they're supposed to be mirroring the The image of God to the world and and yet in reality they are the polar opposite in a lot of ways of what they were supposed to be or projecting themselves to be. We learned last week that individuals would come into the church and maybe you thought you were going to walk into a unified body and instead what you got was division. Here was a church that, that they were supposed to be the saints. They were supposed to be a group of people marching in holiness. And yet, what you had was rank immorality to the point where individuals were, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they were having relations with their stepmother. The church knew about it and did nothing about it. Here was all kinds of fighting. We're going to walk through a section of 1 Corinthians where individuals there are fighting with one another over what they think uh, they're free in Christ to do versus what they think they're not free in Christ to do. You'd walk into the church at Corinth for a worship service thinking you were going to get some, some sort of ordered maybe liturgy or some sort of ordered worshipful experience. Instead, you got the polar opposite. You got this chaotic experience where there's a collection of narcissistic individuals who are, who are deflecting the glory away from God onto their selves. And as bad as that sounds, I think even worse, you had a group of individuals who were questioning the core, fundamental doctrine of the faith. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has to reiterate what the doctrine of the resurrection is because there were individuals who were, who were denying everywhere you turned around, it felt like you were being catfished. Here you have the church at Corinth who were projecting themselves to be one way, but the reality was the polar opposite. I say this is a word in season for a lot of churches in the United States of America, dare I even say the world. Just several months ago, I was... um, I was at home with my siblings. We were celebrating my dad's uh, retirement from his church. He doesn't like the word retirement. He prefers the term realignment. Um, Dad, is uh, his dream is to die preaching. That's how he wants to go out. So dad's going to carry a busy schedule, but it was his last Sunday at his church, and dad and I hopped in the car together that spring day down there in Atlanta, just the two of us, and and dad is being uber-reflective as he's just kind of looking through the proverbial rearview mirror of his decades in ministry and I'll never forget what he said driving down one of the streets there in Woodstock Georgia near his home he says Brian I, I talking about the church he says, Brian I just gotta tell you this is as bad as I've seen it and I'm like well, what are you talking about I mean, you you come to Christ in 1964 and I mean this is as bad as you've seen it and sure enough dad says exactly that's what it is we are divided as never before we are as at each other's throats as never before and we need to remind ourselves first things first gospel above all in fact we learned last week that's what pastor jd showed us what he showed us is is that the way paul deals with all of the sheer madness at the church of corinth is he takes whatever issue they have the brokenness that is so pervasive in the church he names it he explains it he speaks into it But then what Paul does is he applies the gospel to it, sort of like growing up. If you were to come to our home there on the south side of Atlanta growing up, and you saw my mama's medicine cabinet, my mama's medicine cabinet, there wasn't a whole lot of bottles in there. In fact, there was one bottle, and in that bottle was something called cod liver oil. Now, I've heard some groans, and you should be groaning. If you've never had cod liver oil in your life, consider yourself blessed and highly favored. Cod liver oil is the nastiest stuff known to, known to man. And yet, my mom had it in her mind that um, whatever ailed you, she was just going to apply cod liver oil to, to it. Headache, cod liver oil. Toothache, cod liver oil. ache cod liver oil. Weather's starting to change, and you may feel fine, but she's worried about what could happen, cod liver oil. I am convinced that if I was a little boy in mama's house today she wouldn't be watching the news waiting on the CDC guidelines for a vaccination her method of dealing with COVID would be cod liver oil now please don't take that as an endorsement to get vaccinated or not vaccinated if you're offended by that I'd love to answer your emails email me at Simmons at summitchurch.com anyways This is my mom. I'm being a bit facetious here, but you see her strategy. Whatever areas of sickness or brokenness you may have, I'm just going to apply one thing to it. And This is Paul's take. If you look at Paul's medicine cabinet for the brokenness of sin, it ain't complicated. There ain't a whole bunch of stuff in it. He applies one thing and one thing only to it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it actually works, and it tastes better than cod liver oil. We're not saying that you don't lean into therapy. We're not saying you don't get counseling. Get the counseling. Get the therapy. Sit in your small group. Lean into community. But at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, make sure to consistently apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to whatever brokenness you may have in your life. This is exactly what Paul does. Now, this is interesting. I want you to fasten your seatbelts because what Paul does in the opening four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians is he applies the gospel to this area of culture. I want to be careful. Culture, as we'll explain later on uh, in our time together around God's word, culture in general, uh, there's wonderful things about it. Culture in general is not broken, but there are aspects of culture that is. What does Paul do to the brokenness of of culture? He applies the gospel of Jesus Christ to it. What I want you to understand, if you make your way through the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the subtle subplots of the book is there is this um, subtle theme, there's this tension of there being a clash of cultures. Where does this come from? In Romans chapter 116, Paul says these words. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I know if you grew up in church, some of us grew up in church, and maybe you you learned this scripture at some vacation Bible school, um, scripture memory context, and oftentimes we were encouraged or presented this scripture and told to quote it evangelistically as well we should but we shouldn't limit it to just uh, sharing our faith as important as that is. Romans 16 is actually Paul's blueprint, his foundation for what he does when he plants churches. If you study Paul in the book of Acts as he goes to plant a church, whenever Paul walks into a city, he's got two questions. Number 1, uh, where is the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. Um, He does this in Athens. He does this in Ephesus. He does this in Corinth. We're gonna see here in just a few moments. He wants to preach Christ to the Jews, and so he walks to the synagogue, unfolds the scroll, preaches Christ to the Jews. Some Jews get saved, but he's not done. See, Paul doesn't want to just reach part of Athens. He doesn't want to just reach part of Ephesus. He doesn't want to just reach part of Corinth. He wants to reach all of those cities. So now that he leaves the synagogue, he asks the question, where do the Gentiles hang out? Uh, In Athens, they point him up to Mars Hill. In Ephesus, they point him to the Hall of Tyrannus. And that's where he goes to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because, again, he wants to reach the entirety of that town, not just certain zip codes. He wants to reach the whole thing. Now, Summit Church, this is very important for us because at the end of the day, We are committed. Our pastor has proclaimed this vision several years ago. He says we want to be 25% minority by 2025. Now, why did he say that? He didn't say that because diversity is cool. It's a kind of an in thing. He didn't say it because it's a wonderful church growth technique. He didn't say it because he had a political agenda. He said it in reality because if you look at the triangle upon which we are situated, the triangle right now is 56% white, 44% people of color, At the end of the day, what we're saying here is we just want our sanctuaries to mirror our mission field. We don't want to just reach part of the triangle. We don't want to just reach certain zip codes of the triangle. We have a gospel above all greed. We want to reach all of the triangle for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that one amen. But here's where things get a little messy. Here's where things get a little messy because Jews and Greeks didn't like each other. They weren't riding tandem bikes with one another. They weren't singing uh, wonderful praise songs about God with each other prior to coming to faith in Jesus. These two groups were historically at each other's throats, just like we have experienced here historically in the United States of America. So how do they come together? Paul tells us Right in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in fact, over and over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about these two groups, but he does it within the context of the foolishness, the folly, the power of the gospel. What brings them together is not a political agenda. What brings them together is not a political party. What brings them together is the power of the gospel. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, To the Jew I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those outside the law, that that would be Greeks. I became as one outside the law, that I might win them. And then he ends by saying, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. It is only the power of the gospel that can bring people together who don't look like each other, act like each other, think like each other, or vote like each other, and yet they love one another. That's the power of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may be wondering, what then is this gospel? Some of you may not uh, have ever heard the gospel before. You may not know what it is. The power of of the gospel begins on a note of love, that God loved all of us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us. Why did he do that? Because he saw our profound neediness in sin. Our sin had accrued a debt with God that we could never repay. And because of that, he, he understood that we couldn't pay off our sin debt. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. And having paid our debt, you and now have relationship with him. Why is this important? Because sin is not just personal, it is profoundly social. Sin rips apart the fabric of relationships. We see this right in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do is they hide from God, and they hide from each other. That's what sin does. It rips away at the fabric of relationships. The only thing that can restore those relationships is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now You have to understand a little bit about me. Um, When it came to school, grade school, middle school, high school, college, I was an incredibly lazy student. I didn't really start applying myself full on until I had to pay for school myself. So here I am. I graduate from college. Um, Friends of mine graduated summa cum laude, others magna cum laude. I graduated thank you, laude, and just barely got through. And the problem with that is when it came to uh, grad school, which I wanted to go, no grad school was uh, offering me any kind of merit-based scholarships. And that was exacerbated by the problem because, Uh, I was broke. I I did not have the resources. I did not have the means to pay for grad school. And the other problem is, is that uh, none of these grad schools in their justice were going to say, "You can just come on in. Just come on in. We'll just take it on the chin. That's not how it works Uh, because these schools have bills to pay. Uh, they've got, cuts to che- they got uh, checks to cut to various teachers. They've got light bills to pay. In their justice, they could not let me in for free, and I didn't have the resources to pay my bill. Well, what happens? You, understood- you understand what happens. What fills in the gap there is something called a scholarship. Some individual, a group of individuals, they have resources I didn't have and they donate it to this scholarship fund that now satisfies the just demands of the grad school paying their bills and then graciously graciously gives me the resources that i didn't have so that now i can come in and have a relationship with the school oh friends don't you understand we had racked up a bill with a holy god That we did not have the resources to pay. God in his justice could not simply turn and look the other way. The bill had to be paid. But on a hill called Calvary, Jesus said, I will be the scholarship. I will step in and fill in those blanks. And now we are saved not by our works, not by our church attendance, not by our consecutive quiet time streak. We are saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And now what does he do? He now restores that relationship vertically. We are now in relationship with God, and He now drops us into a local assembly of believers known as the church and calls us to work out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for us vertically, which is reconciliation. That is why when believers don't get along, that is why when believers walk in division, It is an assault on the reconciling power of the gospel. So here's what Paul says. I'm grieved. I came and we planted this church. In fact, uh, it says this in Acts chapter 18. Luke writes that Paul tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Some of them got saved. You put them in a church. And now what's happening, chaos, sin, has gotten a foothold And Paul now says, I want to show the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to speak to your culture. He says, I want to press in a little bit. I want to show you what the gospel of Jesus Christ does with culture. He says, hey, Jews, I want to talk to you for a minute. I I understand a little about your culture. I'm Jewish myself. and, And here's one of the ways that the gospel presses in on your culture. Jews seek signs. We're gonna unpack that in weeks to come and see see how that's problematic. And he then goes on to say, Hey, hey, Greeks, I, I understand a little bit about your culture. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So he says, Look, look, I, I understand a little bit about that, but I, I want to show you how the gospel presses in on this. I, I want you to listen to me because what Paul models for us is that the gospel, when it comes to culture, both contextualizes and confronts culture I'll give that to you again the gospel when it comes to culture both contextualizes and it confronts culture what is culture culture is simply the house that we live in Uh, culture is a Powerful mixture of language and upbringing and economics and ethnicity. We've all been powerfully kind of molded and shaped by culture. Culture, in and of itself, isn't bad, but as we've noted, there are some aspects of it. Again, Paul deals with this. He doesn't just throw out the Jewishness, the baby with the bath. What are no, great things about being a Jew? But he says, in this context, I got a problem. Jews seek signs. Yeah, there's great things about being Greek, but I got a problem in this context. Greeks seek wisdom. So, what he wants us to understand is that the gospel contextualizes. What, what does this mean? Again, 1 Corinthians 9 19 to 23 is helpful. It is these seminal texts on contextualization. When we talk about contextualization, we are talking closed hand and open hand. Now, what we mean by this is that that there are certain things that we are fixated on, that that we have a closed hand on. Specifically, we have a closed hand on the message of the cross. That never changes. The substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died in our place and for our sins ain't up for discussion. It ain't up for debate. Uh, Salvation by grace through faith is not something we, we get to tinker with. Closed hand. The message we don't fiddle with, but open hand is our methods, how we convey the message. While the message never changes, the methods we use to communicate that to various cultures not only should change, but must change. We contextualize the gospel in order to confront the idols of a given culture. Let me give you a couple of analogies of what I mean by that. Some years ago, uh, my wife and I and our family, we moved to Memphis, Tennessee to plant a church. It didn't take us long to figure out that, uh, that Memphis, Tennessee is an old south city where most of the people there are from there. They're, they're natives. And also, you need to understand a little bit about the culture of Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, most of them grew up in church. Most of them grew up profoundly religious. Because of that, that that allowed me to contextualize the gospel. I I, I could now um, take for granted that these people had a higher than normal biblical IQ. I could get by with saying stuff like, you remember the story in the Bible because they had been taught it as a little kid. And yet, at the same time, I realized that my evangelism in the city of Memphis was going to have to be different. I was now talking to the religious elder brother of Luke 15, that story of a father and two lost sons. We're not dealing with irreligious people who don't come to church. We're we're dealing with people who, uh, who, who were born in church, so to speak, who grew up in church, who are close in proximity to the Father, but their hearts are as irredeemed as the irreligious. I had to learn to speak to that. Several years later, I found myself pastoring uh, in Silicon Valley, which uh, took me all of a few seconds to realize I ain't in Memphis anymore. Silicon Valley is not the Bible Belt. Most of the people in Silicon Valley don't call themselves Christians weren't weren't raised in the church. If they did spend any time in the church, they left the church never to return. Uh, We would do evangelistic outreaches there, knocking on doors, typical uh, uh, reporting time. We would talk about people who got yelled at and screamed at as we just kind of knocked on the doors. Uh, They're slamming the doors in our face. They weren't trying to hear it. At the same time, the Bay Area has this huge success idol I know success idols are everywhere, but there's an extra dose of that in the Bay Area. So what we had to learn to do is to contextualize the gospel. We couldn't say things like, you, you, you know the story or you're familiar with the story. In fact, oftentimes in my messages, I would quote from secular writers, almost like what Paul does in Mars Hill in Acts 17, to build a bridge with them. But I would also confront the idols of their culture. See, this is what Paul does. Paul says, I want to just take the gospel to you. Um, To the Jew, I became a Jew. That that is, I've contextualized. To those outside the law, the Greek, I became as one. Outside the law, I've contextualized in order to confront. What is Paul confronting? He is confronting their various idols. Jews, you seek signs. Greeks, you seek wisdom. So here's what I want you to understand. No matter what your culture may be, no matter if you're white, if you're black, if you're Korean, if you're Hispanic, no matter what your culture, no matter what your ethnicity, there's some great things about it, but there are some things that we must allow the Holy Spirit and the gospel to press against. Right now, all of us are in one of two boats. Either our culture is driving the gospel or we're allowing the gospel to drive our culture. It's not my money that challenges the gospel. It's the gospel that challenges my money. It's not my my blackness that challenges the gospel. It's the gospel that challenges my blackness. This is what we mean when we talk about gospel above all. So now we whittle down and we understand Paul is saying, I, I want to take some time, Greeks, and I want to challenge you. I want to show you how the gospel confronts your idols. And I think when we unpack this, as we round third and head for home in this sermon, we're going to see some powerful takeaways for us. Here's Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians. As we learned last week, the city of Corinth sat on a major thoroughfare. It was a popular spot for the Greek sophists to come through and the idea of sophist it's the Greek word for wisdom originally the idea for wisdom is really the idea of skillful living but by the time Paul writes the idea of sophist didn't just speak of skillful living it spoke of a it spoke of a witty crafty speaker a person who was a silver throat orator who was filled with great knowledge and these Greek sophists, these powerful speakers, would always stop in Corinth to the point where we might say Corinth was the speaker's corner of its day. Or to use a better analogy, if you've ever been to a venue that hosted a bunch of TED talks, that's what Corinth was. It was the place you stopped to hear these phenomenal speakers. and Around it was this celebrity culture. See, what Paul is speaking into is, and we touched on this a little bit last week, he's saying, I've got a problem with you, Greeks. You've got this celebrity culture. You you think that your way is the right way because there are these big-name individuals, and if they believe it, if they're espousing it, it must be true. But Paul says, let me show you the foolishness of the gospel instead of celebrities it's little people oh friends if you've ever read through the scriptures one of the narratives of scriptures is is God has a soft place in his heart for the underdog God has a soft place in his heart for the underdog take the nation of Israel they were called the dusty ones by the Egyptians Here's Israel in bondage to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians deemed them to be insignificant. They called them the dusty ones. And What then happens? God then shows up and works might mightily and uses the Israelites to pull off one of the biggest upsets of all time. Why? That he might get glory. Or take Ruth. Ruth is a starving immigrant on the brink of death. In this foreign country, she's gone through all kinds of heartache. And God shows up, and what happens? She marries a man named Boaz. She becomes the grandmother of David and ends up in the lineage of Jesus, her grandson David. We might put him as one of the little people. When Samuel shows up to anoint the next king, David's own father deems him as being so insignificant, he doesn't even call him out as a possibility to be anointed as king. Finally, Samuel says, is there someone else? David is brought in. He's anointed king. And this little insignificant one ushers Israel into her golden age. Or take Mary. Mary is from a podunk village called Nazareth, of which it was asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet she's chosen to be the one to birth the Messiah. And speaking of the Messiah... Jesus does not come to earth as a Roman senator. He doesn't come to earth as an affluent member of the upper class. He comes to earth born to two very poor people. And here's an individual who works a blue-collar job. Jesus says of himself, birds of the heaven, uh, birds of the earth have nests. And um, uh, here's a person who says, uh, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's homeless. I want you to understand that God has a heart for little people. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are not saying God doesn't use affluent people. I mean, that's why Daniel's in the Bible. That's why Abraham's in the Bible. God does use affluent people. But why does God have a proclivity towards the little people? Because God is all about his glory. He wants to use people that the world would say are downright underdogs so that he might radiate his glory to the world. Now, friends, this is good news. Because if you're watching this and you feel overlooked, if you're going through a rough season, if you feel as if you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or you're in a bad spot in life and Satan's whispering in your ear, you're too insignificant, you're too broken, you're too messed up. If I understand the little people theme right, you are exactly the kind of candidate God wants to use to show off his magnificent glory. God has always had a soft spot for little people. But not only that, do we see the foolishness of the gospel being contrasted by little people versus celebrities? We also see the foolishness of the gospel in this contrast between apathy and love. Here were the Greeks. The Greeks had a concept called apatheia. Apatheia, again, what we would translate as apathy. They used it in relation to the gods. The Greeks said, these sophists said that the gods are are filled with apatheia. The the idea of apatheia is they have no sense of feeling. To the Greek mind, it was sheer foolishness that a deity would be filled with any kind of emotion for mere humanity. So this whole idea of, of a God who loved, a God who cried tears, a God who sings over us as the Old Testament says, it just blew their minds. It was foolishness was Karl Barth that massive towering intellect who was once asked what is the most profound theological truth you have ever heard in your life he responded by saying it is this Jesus loves me never get so grown and sophisticated in your faith that you are no longer moved by that reality that God loves you John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, friends, the God we serve is not some pun intended stoic. He is not apathetic. He has feelings for us. He loves us. Foolishness to the gospel is not just celebrity versus little people, apathy versus love. But thirdly, we see that the Greeks... They believe that, that the gods were detached. They were removed. That they were never a part of the human predicament. Oh, friends, this flies in the face of the core doctrine of the cross, the core doctrine of Christianity, which says that we believe in the incarnation. John says it this way, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. One translation says that God actually pitched his tent God lived among us. Paul would then expound on this to the Corinthians. Later on he would say, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? God is not detached. This was foolishness to the Gentiles that God would live inside of us. But ultimately the folly to the Greeks was this whole idea that God would actually die on a cross. This idea that That God took on flesh, blew their mind, but God would die on a cross. This was sheer madness. This was sheer folly to the Gentiles. It it blew their minds. In 1 Corinthians 2, the opening two verses, Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul rightly understood the cross to be the centerpiece of both the gospel and human history. For it is our only hope for salvation. This is why Paul would say to the Colossians, look at it with me. And You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Watch it now by canceling the record of debt against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, I'm almost done. Paul talks about the record of debt. What is the record of debt? It's exactly what it, was, what, it, what it sounds. When a person died, all of their debts were written down and it was nailed on the cross above them. The record of debt in our culture, we might say it's our credit report. Our credit report lists all of our debts, all of our creditors. But in a sin or moral sense, in a spiritual sense, the record of debt is every sin we've ever committed, are committing and will ever commit. Paul says that when Christ was crucified, this was nailed to the cross and it was canceled. I love this. The idea of the word canceled in Greek, it means to wipe away as if it never happened. The closest thing we have to this in our context is what happens when a criminal has their record expunged. When a person's record is expunged, whatever the offense was, whatever they were convicted of, it was wiped away as if it never happened. This is foolishness to the Greeks. I don't care what it is you've done. I don't care how much of it you've done. When you enter into a relationship with God, Your record of debt, no matter how many pages it is, of every sin you've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit, is wiped away as if it never happened, and you are restored the full rights of citizenship, of being a son, being a daughter. This is foolishness to the Greeks. Some years ago, I was with a pastor friend of mine, and we were spending the day together. I had been invited by him to do some work with him and his team, and we're hanging out, and We had been making small talk, and all of a sudden I decided to jump into the deep end of the pool. I said, Man, tell me, how how did you come to know Christ as Lord and Savior? He just kind of smiled and looked at me. He goes, Man, you're not going to believe this. He says, It's quite a story. I says, Well, okay, tell me. He said, I grew up and my dad's a very well-known baseball coach in the Colorado area. He says, uh, we weren't Christians. Um, Whatever your image of of a non-believer is, that was my dad. He was a former athlete, and whatever your image of what athletes do that's not God-glorifying, that was my dad. He said, my dad and I had this ritual. Every single Sunday, we would sit down and watch the Denver Broncos play, just me and him together. And he said, it was just one Sunday, we're having our ritual, and dad's doing what he always does, watching the game. He's chugging beers and chugging beers and chugging beers and to the point where he's buzzed but he's not drunk but this is kind of dad's routine so here's my dad chugging beers chugging beers chugging beers he's not drunk but he's almost there and all of a sudden we're watching the game and someone's about to kick a field goal or an extra point and all of a sudden the camera pans to a dude in a clown suit in the stands holding a sign that says Romans 10 9 and 10 He said, my dad stops and says, get me a Bible. He says, my dad had never said that before. Honestly, I thought that was the beer talking. I don't move right away, but my dad is emphatic. Get me a Bible now. He says, I turn the house upside down. It takes me a long time. It's not like that was just a part of our household, but finally I find one. Bring it back to him. Uh, We fumble around, make our way to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we read this whole idea if we, you know, confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, Christ Jesus, Lord, we'll be saved, and sure enough, that's what dad does. He surrenders to God. He says, "I got to tell you, I didn't quite believe it. I thought that was still the beer talking. But when I tell you, the change was instantaneous. And a couple days later, he led me and my siblings and my mom to faith in Jesus Christ. A clown suit holding a sign, Romans 9, and 10, I guarantee you, every time you see that watching a football game, that's what you'll think of. It's the foolishness of the gospel. God uses foolish means to accomplish his great ends. Listen, I'm I'm all for getting the training and yes, we wanna steward the gospel well, But I just want to encourage you, some of you are so paralyzed because you feel as if you've got to dot all your theological I's and cross all your theological T's, and yes, memorize the Scriptures, and yes, exegete culture well, but I want you to understand God is not dependent on our feeble attempts at articulation to save souls. He uses foolish means to accomplish His big purposes here on earth. And friends, right now, I believe under the sound of my voice, you're here. You don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm here to tell you, no, I'm not in a clown suit. But the cross of Jesus Christ, God loving you so much that God came down, he's not detached, gets on a cross, he cancels Your record of debt, so that you might get the scholarship and have a relationship with Him. Never get so sophisticated in your faith that the story of the old rugged cross and its quote unquote foolishness ceases to move you. Father, we bless you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God that the advancement of your kingdom and the salvation of souls is not dependent on our smooth speech. It's not dependent on our know-how. It's not dependent on how much theology we understand. Oh, that doesn't give us a pass. Yes, we wanna learn. Yes, we wanna get equipped. Yes, we wanna be trained the gospel works. We praise you and we honor you for the foolishness of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.